At the signal, time will be out of joint. podcast of all things weird, eerie, and hauntological. I'm Lucy, and I'm here with Sean. Hello. This week, we're going to be exploring a theme, a series of events, and an entity that has been in the background, and in many cases, foreground of events both globally and in the context of this podcast since the turbid winter of 1966. I am talking, of course, about Mothman and his various prophecies. And we're not doing this alone. Uh, because we're joined by someone who is in many ways our own personal Mothman, one Robert J. Keery, a.k.a. Bobsey. Hello, Sean and Lucy. Thank you ever so much for having me on board. Yeah, Bobsey, you might know from, sorry, <laughs> from Diane and various sundry podcasts. Yeah, bits and pieces here and there. I've been waiting. This is the most exciting podcast I've ever been on. Here. I've been waiting to be invited on this one by you two MFs for, well, since the beginning. Yeah, now it's, it's my favourite podcast. And it's going to be as mothy and... Going to be shrill, incoherent, yeah. and change your old bloody life. It's my whole favourite podcast. I love the bit about 20 minutes in when yeah. Lucy's scotch and coffee start to hit and she starts going off. And then about 40 minutes in, <laughs> Sean always finds a new way to pronounce the word deluse. And then, <laughs> those the, and then like the third part of the podcast is a bit above my pay grade, to be honest. You've kind of lost me. But um, that's what makes it such a great learning experience every time, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Thank you for coming on. Yeah. And uh, Bob and I did have, well, we have podded together a few times. We had a little podcast going for a while, Deep Status, Mm -hmm. before that term was entirely cursed. Uh, Still pulls in a solid £2.10 a month, and it still goes to a a local refugee charity. You'll be pleased to hear. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Just, uh, just don't let HMRC know about that extra. <laughs> uh, yeah, those both, both those quids charities. <laughs> both those quids a year. Great. Uh, yeah, it's so very much a money laundering operation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. If anyone is actually listening to this, then that is not true. Anyway, um, so the fucking Mothman prophecies. Okay. Right. Yeah. We, we do, we well, do what is? I mean, like, do we have? Okay, did we have a, like an essay or a theme? Anything we want to talk about that's like tangential to the film that's not actually in the film, like we, we like we like to do. Well, funny you should say that, Lucy. Yes, I do. Well, in fact, you can see it right here on my you monitor. Didn't say that. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. So I want. So as we move, as as we journey together into the town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, flutter, if you will. <laughs> we're going. To, we're going to start off. Um, we're going to start off with a little chat about high weirdness. No. Uh, okay, 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 okay. So, okay, high weirdness. This is a term that refers both to a kind of supernormal experience, is what I'm going to call it. I'm not going to say supernatural necessarily, I'm going to call it kind of a supernormal or in the extraordinary experience. Uh, it can also be used, um, this is the sense that another writer, Eric Davis, uses it in his book, High Weirdness. Uh, it can also be used to refer to a particular cultural moment. So, what do I mean by that? Uh, by supernormal experience, I mean an experience which broadly maps onto the criteria for religious experiences. Like, typically, you know, the, the classic definition is provided by William James, uh, which we'll go on to in a little bit. But... But at the same time, we use this term high weirdness because the term religious experience is insufficient. Like the the experiences that people report, which gets described as experiences of high weirdness, they have a certain like excessive quantity to them, which is which we'll come back to. And by that cultural moment, 
we, we mean specifically the visionary, esoteric, psychedelic, countercultural current of the 70s, and as exemplified by Philip K. Dick, PKD, Terence McKenna, and of course Robert Anton Wilson, uh, who are the three figures that uh, Davis studies most in his book. But that's really weird, by the way, sorry, but I'd never kind of thought about it referring to a specific bounded uh, moment before. I'd, I'd only really thought about it as being a set of generalised phenomena which could be encountered mm. hither and yon. But there is a canon. Yeah, right. That's what apparently there is now. The weird canon. I think, I, I think there's, um, yeah, because the term high weirdness, I hadn't encountered used in that sense before I read the book High Weirdness by Eric Davis. And so, I, so it's possible that he, that usage of it is a particular... Uh, coinage of his but it does kind of track because these are all people whose lives were very much lives of high weirdness especially mm. like you know the pun is kind of you know uh, is, is deliberate there are people like Terence McKenna and uh, Bob Wilson and so on sort of like oh, being, being yeah, very sure. very <laughs> <laughs> whoa, uh, being very much into yeah these being psychedelic encounters a lot of the time so okay and they did I guess set the parameters of discussion for what passes for that kind of topic as well right exactly yeah, yeah. okay yeah so um William James, who I just mentioned. So William James and the religious experience. So a little bit about James, 19th century American philosopher working in the pragmatist tradition um, and sort of like speaking super broadly, that pragmatism as a position kind of like it holds that for a statement or concept to be true. That means that the usage of that concept, right, is obviously uh it performs something that like seems to work basically so um you could say that for james uh you know truth is what works in the sense that um if we say of someone or something that uh they or it is healthy that means it's fulfilling a particular set of like criteria that we'd expect it to fulfill so when we say some so for from the pragmatist position when we say something is true we mean it's operating the way we would expect it to operate it it has a kind of predictability to it uh, and so on. But what this kind of also means is that um, there's a lot of variableness to truth then. Like, like it's very, you know, this isn't something that's especially fixed. Uh, it's not, we're not talking about like abstract platonic eternals. We're, we're talking much more about the lived experiences of people. We're talking about sort of like what is actually, what, work, what is working, what's working for us here. Um, and this... This, so this is an epistemology that is very sceptical of absolutist claims, and it really centres in on the actual, you know, lived experiences of people. Like it's quite, it's quite similar to phenomenology as, a, as you know the continental school. It being very much about you know, okay, what's actually happening at the experiential level, the actual, you know, the plane of ordinary living, which is actually you know where we spend our lives, what's working there, what's happening there. Why shouldn't this be the focus of our attention, right? So James is very is most well known for his work on religious experience or mystical experiences, and he gave us a set of four criteria basically for determining yeah for defining mystical and religious experiences. Um, this is like I said, this is what he's most well well known for. These the four qualities of a mystical experience for James being ineffability. Uh, they the experience cannot be adequately described to others. They have a quality to them, which means they have to be directly experienced. They can never really be fully shared. They could be like gestured at, but you can't really, you just have to have, have the experience, right? 
There is a noetic quality to them. Uh, they are experienced as states of knowledge, uh, where a truth is discovered that couldn't have been known otherwise. Uh, they're transient, they are of a limited duration, and there's an element of passivity to them. The, the subject is passive in the face of the experience. They can't, they can't influence it. It's something that's happening to you, right? Um, what's also interesting about religious or mystical experiences taken uh, taken as a whole though is that they they're not necessarily or even not often pleasant um and we, we talked about this in um our episode of martyrs actually used this i, I, brought, I brought this up as an example um yeah these experiences can actually be quite can be terrifying they can be very disturbing things to experience and like saint Teresa of avila in her spiritual diary uh, she described a kind of religious ecstasy which in catholic um in catholic mystical tradition is called uh transverberation uh and she describes it like having a like a red hot hook like jammed into her guts and like ripped out again so like this encounter of like the absolute uh, like um otherness of of god coming in coming into her uh, in very, very, sort of like, she describes it in very direct, physical, violent, uh, violating terms almost. Like, these aren't experience, and like, she does, you know, this is horrible and very, you know, yeah, this is a very disturbing experience, but it's also, you know, a transformative experience for her. Like, she does view this and writes this in, in miraculous terms. This is feeling God's love in the most direct way you possibly can, and it is agony. Like, it's agony to have that kind of experience, right? So we're saying, sorry, that like that, that James's description and experience of a religious experience is we would call weirdness within the context of Davis's framework. Yeah, this is something about we. Yeah, so something coming sort of like onto here because there's a um, there's a yeah yeah so yeah I just wanted to talk a little bit more about this. Me, I'm going to get onto the okay. get onto the bit. Don't rush me. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just checking, I'm just checking that I'm catching up, that I'm, that I'm caught up, and you know. And as, as the listeners might be wondering right now, so yeah, don't, don't, don't worry, we're getting, we're getting to the. The listeners might be as stupid as I am. <laughs> Are we going to get onto like I don't know? I, I was going to ask like, uh, does this have a kind of like map onto the Lovecraftian weird, the weird that we talk about in the beginning of every single episode? You probably don't mention it again. Is <laughs> um, <laughs> so there a kind the, of answer thing? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, in terms of like, um, yeah, I think that I mean, yeah, often in Lovecraft writing, it feels like. Um, he's wrestling with these kind of like noumenal experiences somehow because you know like the weird the weird of you know all things here with North Horns Logical is just to, just to remind uh, our listeners uh, all first time listeners that that is from Mark Fisher's last book uh, The Weird and the Eerie uh, and in his uh, in this kind of like these two aesthetic category, he, categories he proposes um, specifically for talking about horror but not just that um, encounters the aesthetic of eeriness is deficiencies of presence or, or absences you know sort of like uh, like the um or, uh, yeah so like um uh, you know so sort of like a faceless figure is an eerie figure because there's like a, a disturbing absence there right while the weird is uh, is grotesque it's an excess it's, a, it's an excessive uh, explosion of presence this is like the writhing mass of the shoggoth right it's just mm. the too muchness of it the overwhelming too muchness of it so yeah like these experiences so, so yeah these these so, yeah but it sounds like it sounds like the experience that that james is describing here is very much a weird one not an eerie one yes yes okay. yes yes exactly yeah i think that uh, and i think when it comes to when it comes to weird fiction 
Um, I think, you know, right like Algernon Blackwood and Arthur Macken are fantastic for conveying that noumenal quality to the wit. I think they are, they're better at it than, well, I don't want to say better at it than, than Lovecraft, because Lovecraft is doing something different with it, because, you know, for, for Lovecraft, the world is fundamentally terrifying. You know, so, like, so for him, like, any kind of experience like that is just a shattering, devastating one, uh, regardless of what the nature of the otherness is. You know, so, you know, you know for Lovecraft, you know, it's the otherness of, like, people from Italy. You know, it's just, like, psychically terrifying for him, because he's so, he is so contained within himself. While for Macken and Blackwood, um, the, the noumenal, the, the excessiveness of divinity is something like, it is terrifying. Like, it is a frightening force, but not in the same, they, but they were not in the same, like, pure, but not in the same, like, neurotic or psychotic terms is for Lovecraft. Like, it is, like, it is terror in the face of God, and it's understood as that. Like, it's still, right. under, like, you know, for, like, you know, like, Matt, you know, Mac and Woods are Christian, if there's an esoteric bent, and Blackwood, Blackwood was a little bit of everything, but, yeah, like, they both, they both understood it in, like, clearly in sort of, in mystical, religious terms, even if, like, slightly idiosyncratic ways, but, you know, like, Lovecraft's, like, Lovecraft's athe atheism doesn't give him an outlet like that, like sure. it just has to be a monstrous tentacled um, extraterrestrial, you know, that's what it has to be, the encounters of the other, of, of, of excessive otherness. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no like, um, there's no enrichment in, there's no like learning from the perspective of the narrator in Lovecraft either, right? As you say, they, they're, it, yeah, they're learn, just destroyed and they're yeah, relating it post facto as well. Because the, yeah, the experience of learning is destructive for mm. them. Because you know, the knowledge can only be destructive. And, for, for and in a sense, it's kind of like nothing is necessarily gained from the knowledge because it's like it's, it just shows the limits of what they're capable of and, like what, and where understanding trails off. Whereas I feel like there's something kind of there's, there's something more in it for, like, the human witness <laughs> in, in this kind of, like, high witness. Like, well, I mean, we're, we're probably going to get into kind of, like, the weeds of this in that, like, it has a lot more kind of focus on sort of... I don't know, like, the... Uh, it feels like... it's Not to say that, you know, it's, like, kind of these things are happening to the particular people for a particular reason, but actually, I mean, that, that, that kind of is. I mean, we talk about the okay, Dick's things of, like, being kind of, like divine experiences but like very much in the sense that they feel like they've been chosen in some capacity to experience these things yeah. whereas in a kind of Lovecraftian weird sense that would just be a, a totally irrelevance mm -hmm. and they just happen to be like the next fucking schmuck in line yeah. to, <laughs> to get their, their minds blasted out the back walls of their head yeah to, yeah yeah uh, that's yeah. a really good point I think because like because um, in Philip Dick you get like a sense that it's all part of some Glittering, wonderful plan. Yeah, whereas Dick, Dick is a Christian. Like, Lovecraft is, like, is a there's Christian. no plan. Yeah, he's got yeah. Like plan, a the plan is deep kind of. Yeah, he's got like kind of deep historicity to it, where he mm -hmm. sees himself as part of continuity rather than just another troubled ape. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm.